Hello, and welcome once again to the Expanding Eyes podcast and to our ongoing discussion of Milton's Paradise Lost. We are in book two at this point of Paradise Lost, and that means that we're in hell, and we're going to linger there for the duration until the end of book two. The poem begins following the conventions of classical epic by plunging the reader in medias race into the middle of things, which means in this case that the war in heaven between the good angels and the rebel angels led by Satan has already taken place before the poem began, and the rebel angels, of course, lost, and were plunged down into hell, where in book one, in the opening scene, they come back to consciousness again, are rallied by Satan as their leader, build a palace or hall called Pandemonium, and begin at the opening of book two to debate, okay, we lost round one, now what? And a debate ensues in which at least three speakers take the floor and make speeches, each of which represents an attitude and a proposal as to what to do now in the face of defeat that are actually rather orderly catalog of possible perspectives and positions. And we were in the middle of that catalog last time, and let me just quickly recap where we had been. We looked at the first speaker and his speech, and that is Moloch. These are all characters whose names, at least, come out of the Bible. Milton is expanding, in some cases, as to their identity. But Moloch, who comes from the Old Testament, represents one possible attitude, one possible proposal, and that is aggression, violence. That was only round one. I'm for round two. Let's go back and attack again. Yes, we got pounded last time. We got humiliated, but I'm going right back in the ring. I refuse to admit defeat, and if I am annihilated, that's okay with me. You could picture a modern dress version of this with Moloch, with the garb of a sort of hell's angel biker looking pretty lethal. Next speaker is his exact opposite, and this is deliberately symmetrical, Belial. A fairer angel lost not heaven, Milton says, or the narrator says with dry irony. Freud said that the two drives of the human unconscious were aggression and the pleasure principle culminating, of course, in sexuality. And that's what Belial represents. Instead of aggression, the plea of pleasure and the maximizing 
of pleasure, which to Belial means suck up. We can't win, he says. He refutes Moloch, saying that there is no way that we could win if we attacked again. And as a matter of fact, he is very much afraid that if they attacked again, God's patience would be at an end and he would simply wipe them all out or at least defeat them again and increase their torment. Therefore, let us suck up to him. And if we do that, maybe, maybe, line 210 or so, if we can sustain and bear our supreme foe in time, may much remit his anger and goes on to say, maybe he'll even let us kind of sneak back into heaven again eventually. So even if he doesn't, maybe over time we will be changed at length and this place won't be so painful to be in. This horror will grow mild, this darkness light. Therefore, let's do the exact opposite. Let's suck up and see what we can get out of it. To which the narrator sums up, thus Belial, with words clothed in reason's garb, counseled ignoble ease and peaceful sloth, not peace. Then there's a third speaker, Mammon. And Mammon gives us pause for a moment because at first he seems to be simply retreading the same ground as Belial. He is definitely agreeing with Belial that trying to attack again is simply futile. When hell freezes over is basically his attitude to that plan. But he is not in agreement about Belial's idea of sucking up. He proposes a third position, and that is a kind of isolationism or neutrality. Let's just stay down here. Let us live to ourselves. And let's be Switzerland. Let's make hell into neutral Switzerland. Live to ourselves. The, li the line literally occurs in line 254. Though in this vast recess, free and to none accountable, preferring hard liberty before the easy yoke of servile pomp. Mammon is not the only devil to rationalize a bad course of action or inaction in this case by making it appear to be some heroic virtue. Satan does a lot of that, but trying to portray what is really a failure as a virtue. Here we'll be free, and here we're, we are here not because we were thrown down here for bad behavior, but because we prefer hard liberty to servility. What drives this behind the scenes? It sounds simply, again, like a reasonable kind of position 
But there's a reason, and we've already been given that in the earlier description of Mammon in Book 1, the reason that Mammon is so content to stay down here is that he is the one who is always looking down and by doing so found gold down there. He is the opportunist. Well, I can use this to get rich. It's a get-rich scheme in the end. All three of these speeches bring up something that I have glanced upon but not fully opened up as, a, as an exploration, but one of the hardest questions about Paradise Lost, and that is this. Milton was a revolutionary in life. He revolted against authority, against the king, and, of course, the monarchy and aristocracy subscribed to the ideological position, sometimes called the divine right of kings, that kings ruled as God's representatives by right, and that, therefore, in revolting against the king, no matter how lousy a king he might have been, you are revolting against God himself. Milton and the other Puritans didn't buy that. Basically, their answer would have been revolting against God is one thing, revolting against Charles I is another. They ain't the same. Whatever you say, useful rationalization, the divine right of kings. But Milton was a revolutionary, and not just a revolutionary, but practically the chief apologist of the Puritan Revolution in the face of Europe. He wasn't just a member of the party. He was Cromwell's Latin secretary, which means he wrote innumerable pages of Latin argumentation justifying the Puritan position to the horrified audience of the elite in Europe. Then he turns around and writes a book about two failed and wrong revolutions or attempts. One, that of the devils. Two, that of the human race in the persons of Adam and Eve. Has he recanted? Has he turned conservative in his old age and after the defeat of his cause? Blake said that famously, that Milton was of the devil's party without knowing it. But I think we have to look at another possibility here, that Milton does know what he's doing. And we have to look further to see exactly what that is. I don't think Milton changed. I think he remained a revolutionary. I think what he is doing, without saying it in book two in the debates, is to argue about why the Puritan Revolution itself failed, why his party failed, but more largely, and this is what caught me when I was still young in the 60s or early 70s reading Milton for the first time, in the era, in another would-be revolutionary era, 
where the revolution failed, you have to go back and analyze what happened. It's not that we have renounced the cause, but we have to think about why it failed before we can move forward again. And there is a chain of tradition that has used Milton as a way of thinking about this. I have mentioned the reactions to Milton by Blake and Shelley, both revolutionaries during the period of the French and American revolutions. And the big one in that era to the Romantic poets was the French Revolution. America was really a kind of frontier backwater. Nobody really cared all that much in Europe if some guys in Boston dumped a bunch of tea into the harbor. But the French Revolution shook all of Europe because if it could happen there, it could happen in any of the countries, all of which were ruled by monarchies. And it failed. It raised enormous hopes and then failed and the Romantics were crushed by this and wrote their greatest poetry not in the euphoria of hopefulness in the early period, but out of the period of dark disillusionment, looking back on the failure and the backlash of reactionary measures, not only in France, but in all of Europe for a couple of generations. What happened? Why did it fail? And not to become too self-involved here, but I will add that my own experience as a hippie in the 60s, reading Milton for the first time, even as the United States was going through another would-be revolutionary period that collapsed and again disheartened so many, always to go back and analyze why did it fail? And in a nutshell, it failed because people's heads were not liberated. Social and political activism is all very well and may be called for, but the real problem is that will always collapse if you don't first break what Blake in a crucial poem, in a crucial line, called the mind-forged manacles in his great poem, London. You can get rid of the external chains, but it will all in the end go bad if you don't break the chains, the figurative chains that imprison people mentally. And I think the way I have always read book two, The Debate, is Milton not trying to insult his fellow Puritans by likening them to devils, but nevertheless saying by implication that when revolutions fail, it's always for internal mental reasons. And Moloch, Billion, and Mammon represent various neurotic 
and self-centered attitudes that cause the revolution to fail from within. Whether it's a bunch of devils opposing God himself, whether it's the Puritans, whether it is the French Revolution, or the counterculture in my own time. And the same attitudes pop up. Revolutionary uprisings attract people for personal reasons. We're seeing it with horror again in the United States at this moment. Trump pulled the cork out of the bottle and many demons came out seeing their chance. What's going on to me is a kind of contagious enthusiasm. Oh yeah, somebody left the lock off the gate and suddenly we swarm and everybody jumps on the bandwagon, driven by their own personal neuroses and selfish motives. There were people in the 60s among the student revolutionaries of the left rather than the right in that era who simply got into it because, oh, it's a chance to be violent, maybe. The weathermen who blew up buildings the line in the Bob Dylan song, you don't need to be a weatherman to know which way the wind blows, refers to the radical violent group of revolutionaries in the 60s. I didn't know any violent revolutionaries, though I was a hippie personally, but I knew a lot of Belials to a lot of people in the 60s and who knows, wherever an uprising is an excuse for a party, man. The rules are down, and now we'll, we can do what we want. It's just an excuse to party. And finally, the mammons. In my era, we watched so many hippies turn into yuppies, opportunists. They just seized, jumped on whatever bandwagon they needed to jump on. We're seeing that in the right as well. People who are turning themselves into ultra-Trumpists, J.D. Vance here in Ohio, simply out of opportunism. I'll do and say whatever I need to do and say to make it. These are all universal attitudes that can cripple a revolution from within. And what we have already discussed in previous episodes about Milton's attitudes of choosing. Life is a series of decisions and choices, and you have to analyze your choices before you make them. Otherwise, you can put your foot in it. I think that's exactly what's going on here. This is not simply classical epic machinery, the armies debating before the next battle. This is a deep analysis of human politics and p human values, or lack thereof. At any rate, Satan has shrewdly allowed the debate to go on as I said last time, he knows his politics and he knows that everybody has to feel that they were listened to. And then finally, you take the meeting over and 
get it to do what you feel that it needs to do. And even then, you might not do it directly, but as Satan does here, through Beelzebub, his second in command, offering an alternative to all of those plans, all of which have obvious flaws to them. Let's do this instead. And because it comes from Beelzebub, they don't feel that the leader is squashing them with his authority. Oh, yeah, good idea. And the plan is this. We know that God has created another world and another species. Paradise Lost again told in the conventions of classical epic, specifically the Odyssey, out of order. We will see that, that creation in book seven. But here it has already occurred and they've heard about it somehow, the internet, whatever. Let's go see what trouble we can make there to screw up God's attempt at repairing the damage by model 2.0. Oh, yeah, great plan. Who will go and scope that out? Satan rises and modestly says, well, somebody has to do it. And if you want me, I'll be glad to dedicate myself to that task. Oh, our fearless leader. And he gets great political capital out of something that he has in fact maneuvered to happen because that's exactly what he wanted in the first place. So off he goes and we leave off with Satan for several pages, which yet again, always I tell students, always ask what seem like the big dumb questions because usually, and certainly when you're dealing with someone as profound as Milton, they aren't dumb. There was a real reason for what seems to be a rather pointless exercise. And in this particular case, it is a lengthy description for two or three pages of, well, Satan goes off on his adventures of spying and scouting and planning. Be it ever so humble, there's no place like home, even though you're in hell. We get a several page description of what the devils do to occupy their time while Satan is gone. Okay, granted he's going to be gone for a while, but do we need this? Does it advance the plot or the point? It does not particularly advance the plot, but it definitely advances a point. And again, my suggestion is to look beyond the overt literal plot and even beyond the overt Christian committed messages in Paradise Lost, but always pause to think, can this be universalized even for someone who has no Christian commitment at all? Are we talking about something universally human? And you often might find that. Here, what do you do? How do you live when life has no meaning and no hope? 
that is hell beyond all tortures and torments and fire and brimstone that's hell life with no meaning and no hope and for all eternity here it's let's while away the hours while satan's gone but in the background is the idea of eternal damnation and in the 20th century, this resonates perhaps more powerfully than it did in previous centuries because we are so secularized and we are faced much more starkly with the question of how do you live if you don't feel there is any wider meaning or purpose to life? And the devils here try to distract themselves from their own despair and sense of meaninglessness by various activities that represent the things that human beings do to distract themselves from the pointlessness of their own lives and the sense of futility. First of all, they try to make it look noble, try to rev themselves up to a heroic temperament. Some of them engage in games that are likened to the Olympic Games, line 530, as at the Olympian Games or Pythian Fields, various competitions, and the Olympic Games, as we saw in the Iliad, go back to various contests that were actually held long before the Olympics were instituted, the funeral games for Patroclus in Book 23 of the Iliad, for example. Sports, take your mind off of it. Let's watch sports or participate in sports. Then others, more mild, it says, retreated in a silent valley and sing with notes angelical to many a harp their own heroic deeds and hapless fall by doom in battle. They compose epic songs praising their own heroism in the battle against God in heaven. There's a bit of satire certainly there, though we also have to point out that that is what the classical heroes did in Book 9 of the Iliad when Achilles' three friends enter his tent to beg him to return to battle, they find him singing heroic deeds with a lyre or harp. Not particularly his own, perhaps, but still, this is the purpose of heroic verse in a pagan context, to serve as role model and motivator. So we make this look noble, and again, cheering ourselves up and complaining about fate. Oh, damn, we were just, you know, we were so good, but we were, you know, fate just didn't give us a break. Others still turn into philosophers and theologians. Others apart sat on a hill, retired in thoughts more elevate and reasoned high of providence, foreknowledge, will, and fate, fixed fate, free will, foreknowledge absolute, and found no end in wandering mazes lost.
Milton is not putting down philosophy or theology. The terms there are actually those, not just of theology, but of Christian and, in fact, Puritan Calvinist theology. And they are terms that will very definitely concern both Milton and God himself later in Paradise Lost for knowledge, fate, free will, and so forth. But the devils are cut off from any kind of wider perspective that will make their reasonings anything but wandering mazes lost. And again, in the 20th century, we have whole philosophies, deconstruction, for example, that says that all arguments end in wandering mazes lost. I'm not attempting a cheap put-down by that whatsoever. I am saying that that is a serious philosophical position in our time because of a disbelief in any wider perspective. At any rate, the narrator here simply sums it up, vain wisdom all and false philosophy. But nothing else is possible. They are cut off from any wider vision by their own act. They are basically solipsistic. All possible attitudes. Yet others say, hey, let's distract ourselves by being adventure heroes. Look, we're in a whole new territory. Let's scout it out and see what's here, which is convenient for Milton's purposes because we can follow those, the camera eyes, so to speak, follows these adventurers as they explore the terrain of hell. And what they discover, to make a long story short, is a topography that is very much drawn from classical descriptions, including the four rivers of hell, or bodies of water at least, sometimes they are lakes, but corresponding to the four rivers of Eden explicitly named in the book of Genesis, and various other features. A famous line, rocks, caves, lakes, fens, bogs, dens, and shades of death, a universe of death which God by curse created evil. Where all life dies, death lives and nature breeds. Not a fun place. Meanwhile, Satan, and this takes us to the end of book two. Each book in Paradise Lost is practically a microcosmic world in itself. And there's no sense hurrying through these because in hurrying we lose so much and each of the episodes within the larger episode of a particular book are often so fascinating and hold so many keys to the larger pattern that it is both interesting and illuminating to take them slowly. Here at the end of book two 
we encounter something that yet again startles us, confuses us, and that's okay. As a reader, I suggest always allow yourself your own reactions and then ask, why am I thrown off balance and confused? You can, a reductionist attitude is to say, well, there's something wrong with this poem here. I don't like this. This is weird. But it's a way in, a way to a much deeper reading, at least potentially. Try it and see to try to say, okay, if there is a deeper purpose here, what in the world is it? Because this is a weird episode. And the weirdness comes from a shift in style. It's not the only time Milton does this. Nevertheless, it's a striking instance of a stylistic, stylistic shift. So far, most of the first two books have been modeled on Classical epic, yes, and equally so, as most critics would agree, Shakespearean tragedy. It's highly dramatic, with speeches and vivid characters and descriptions. Here, the shift is to something quite different, and in fact, medieval, because it is a shift to an allegorical treatment. Satan, approaching the gates of hell to leave, encounters two figures who are walking allegorical abstractions. Allegory is when characters or events have a conceptual label attached to them on another higher, more conceptual level. Allegory, based on the Greek root allos, meaning other, and other level of meaning. Sometimes, in more thoroughgoing allegory, as here, sometimes the key to that higher conceptual meaning is the name of the character. They are not given actual names, but conceptual names. What Satan encounters, barring his way at first from leaving hell, are two figures who are sin and death personified very different from the vivid characterization elsewhere in Paradise Lost, something that you might expect in a medieval poem before Dante, something like in the drama Everyman, for example, rather than in Paradise Lost. And yet, it's an interesting episode. There's a point to it. Milton is capable of employing multiple styles within the larger pattern of Paradise Lost. He is looking for a universal vision and meaning, but I'm not the only critic to point out that his attempt to be encyclopedic, as Northrop Fry would say, to be all-comprehending, extends to style as well as to theme and content. And we will take up there next time. This is an episode that has its own kind of satiric black humor and shouldn't be rushed. And we will take up from this point next time and talk about why this is occurring.